Welcome from me, John Strickland, to Our Future Skies in partnership with AIG. In this podcast series, I'm talking with a number of leading players from different parts of the airline industry. I'm exploring with them a range of views on where it might be headed and looking ahead in a time frame of 10 to 20 years. It's certainly an incredibly challenging time for the industry, still being affected by the ongoing aftermath of the COVID pandemic, which at least we hope is over, military conflict in Ukraine and significant economic uncertainties. On top of this, there's a noticeable change in the political outlook in many parts of the world. And of course, when it comes to the subject of the environment and sustainability, aviation is very much centre stage, understandably attracting ever more attention. In this episode, we're going to hear how these and future challenges may influence the low-cost segment of the airline business with the CEO of EasyJet, Johan Lundgren. Johan has had a long career in the travel industry. He's held senior positions in Europe's largest travel group, TUI, and he joined EasyJet as CEO in December 2017. So welcome, Johan. Thank you very much, John. Well, before we kick off and look at some of the uh, the wider issues concerning the future of the sector, let's just take a look at uh, EasyJet for a few moments. And I, I was reflecting, you know, and it's quite incredible to me, you know, the airline was founded way back in 1995 by uh, entrepreneur Stelios Hadjianu. It was really quite a maverick airline when it came on the scene. It had just a couple of leased aircraft. Uh, the advertising slogan was uh, making flying as affordable as a pair of jeans. And it also really marked the birth of uh, direct sales through the internet. Uh, it also cut out travel agents, uh, saying that it offered no no free lunch to those agents. So you've really come a long way since that time now to being one of Europe's leading, not just low-cost airlines, but airlines period with a fleet of over 300 aircraft. So if you want to just give us a bit of an update on where you are today, Johan. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I was uh, doing a base visit in, in Nice the other day, and I tried to go and see one of our bases uh, at least every other week. And I was telling them as, as it was part of a 10th anniversary rem and reminded them that the, the strategy of the company today and the purpose of the companies today is you know, almost exactly what it was when it started. We, we, we see ourselves as the original democratizer of travel. Uh, our purpose is making low-cost travel easy. We want to be Europe's most loved uh, airline. And you know, most people wouldn't remember that today, but you would certainly know that and I would know that 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 before the deregulation, you know, the travel and flying was really for privileged and, and wealthy people. And we set out, as you said, to make this accessible for everyone. And I think now, strangely enough, you come after all these years and you recognize that that purpose of making locals travel easy and accessible for millions and millions of people is probably even more important now, where we see huge inflationary cost pressures in the UK, squeeze on, on, um, on uh, households from a financial perspective as well. So, you know, clearly the purpose and what we're trying to uh, achieve and have achieved is still very, very relevant. And when it comes to what, where we stand today, we we set out coming into the pandemic that, you know, we don't know for how long this is going to last, but, but we know that success will look like if we can come out of this in a stronger fashion relatively than we were coming into this versus our competitors. And, and I think that that still holds true. We have um, one of the lowest net debt of any European airline uh, investment grade balance sheet, uh, uh, 3.6 billion of cash and 4.7 billion of liquidity and, and just had one of the strongest financial quarter from an EBITDA point of view. So, you know, we, we're, we're in a good place to continue this. But as you said, 
you know, clearly it's been rocky. If you just go back, you know, these two and a half years ago, who would have thought the years that we had in front of us? Well, well, indeed, as, as you alluded there in your answer, you know, and a number of challenges around us now, and uh, we have to take a look uh, into the future at what else may be happening. Certainly, it's a very different world from uh, the one in which Easy began with, you could say, the flippancy of that advertising slogan about uh, cheapness as compared to a, a pair of jeans. So let's now look at the priorities of today and get stuck into some of the, the, the meaty topics, uh, starting with one you mentioned there, the COVID pandemic. Uh, as, I, as I said in my introduction, hopefully the worst is behind us, but we, we simply don't know. Uh, and the, the extent of the crisis was something uh, of magnitude of which we'd never seen before. There was no comparison we c- could make. Uh, what was your initial reaction as that began to hit and we could see things were closing down, Yoan? Well, I, I let me embarrass myself to tell you what I said to the board just, uh, I think, a couple of months before the, the breakout of this. I, I said to the board, uh, look, I can almost guarantee you that this is going to be the best year ever in the company's <laughs> history. Uh, and I, and uh, I, I, I think about that sometimes and, and um, you know, reflect on the fact that, you know, how little you actually know what was happening in the future. But, but I think that, you know, there were, there were a couple of things that we decided uh, on early on that proved to be right. We, we said, in contrast to some other airlines, that one, we don't know for how long this is going to last. So cash is going to be absolutely key. We need to make sure that we have liquidity and we have raised a huge amount of cash throughout the pandemic because we simply didn't know where, where it was going to end. Um, and we couldn't second guess also the, the not, you know, just to mention the, the, the virus in itself, but also the other dimension, which was the travel restrictions. I mean, there was a huge difference in terms of how stringent uh, they were and how damaging they were, where UK was the one who was, you know, the, the toughest when it came to travel restrictions. And what I think many, many people in the UK doesn't know is that, you know, most of Europe were certainly throughout, you know, uh, certain pairs were, were flying and back up as, as normal. So, and being UK largest airline, we were, you know, very damaged about that. But cash and liquidity was something that was a priority to reduce the, the cash burn and, and to stop the losses because we wanted to make sure that the cash lasted. And also then, you know, that we did what we could in terms of getting ourselves ready for the recovery. So we did a huge changes around those three priorities, really. And, uh, and I think that the, the difficulty was the, the starts and stops that we saw. You know, by this time last year, things were looking really well, if you remember, John. And then we mm-hmm. came to Omicron and then, you know, restrictions were still then reintroduced in the UK. And even in early January, the government couldn't tell us what uh, restriction would be in place or not be in place for the summer. So the last set of restrictions were only removed in March, which made it incredibly difficult, which is well documented clearly on, on um, how to you know, um, get going with a successful recovery in the summer. Well, I think you've really set the scene perfectly there, you know, and for all the challenges that uh, this virus uh, brought us uh, in the industry. If we kind of try to project that uh, into the future, touching on a couple of the points you've made, uh, I mean, how might we do things differently? You know, what learnings could there be? Particularly, you talked there about the challenge of liquidity, and I wanted to ask you, do you think uh, not only EasyJet, but do you think the industry has to find a, 
a different approach to liquidity management so that it can make sure it has the necessary buffers and the robustness financially for any other major future shock of this nature? Well, I think it's very dependent on on, on the airline and, and the company you're talking about. Uh, as I said, we were you know, uh, privileged to come in at this as one of the strongest airlines. We had the best mm-hmm. order then. But I think the fact that we took the decision early on to say, look, we're going to need to go out and make sure we have, you know, as much liquidity as possible. So I think we raised over, which has been really tough and it's been difficult decisions, but over seven billion pounds since the start of the pandemic. And in contrast to some of our competitors, we're not backed up by any government and and we don't get any preferential treatment and neither uh, would we want to, to have that either. We operate on commercial terms and I, I think it's more down to the fact that how well managed the the various companies are, and of course, if you're if you are in in that category, you you wouldn't want to see that subsidies or undue support is given to somebody else. I mean, market forces needs to needs to have you know plays role. Uh, but from a liquidity point of view, I, I think one should be careful to trying to you know, regulate that more than it is, because I like to see that, you know, commercial and viable and strong companies, they should survive, they should have a benefit for being fiscally prudent. And if you're not, you 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 shouldn't be given, you know, undue support. Yeah, and, and one other angle I, I think is interesting, Yeah, and because there was no way to prepare for this when we didn't know it was coming, as you said, you were expecting a, a good year, two months prior to it happening. But one thing that seems to have evolved and become more important to me for the future is technology. You know, the industry had to respond. It had to throw out a lot of its processes, and particularly in, in, in terms of planning, uh, schedules, uh, pricing, and so on, and everything looking towards the future was inevitably based on historic information. Uh, EasyJet is a digital airline uh, par excellence. Uh, I guess digital played a role and would play a role even more in the future in in managing a major crisis. Yes, and, and I mean there, there's a, it's an interesting aspect of it, and I, I come to think of two examples, which is uh, slightly different, but it but it still evolves. You know, the digital and and the data capability of a company, and and as you said, I think we've been in the forefront in many of these areas, but. But uh, when we came into the first part of the, the, this pandemic and when we grounded, if you remember, the, the, the whole of the fleet, uh, we, we you know, could clearly see the absolute need for customers to be able to self-service. When you then had the virus who, who created a lockdown in the places where we had the call centers and contact centers in India and South Africa, it, you just realize how absolutely important it was for customers to be able to sell service themselves. So as we then continued through the, the pandemic, and whilst there was a lot of projects, it was put on ice because you seemed to needed to save the, the money and the cash. We, we completely reinvented the ability for customers to sell service. So today, uh, it, it is about 80% of every transaction you can possibly think of the customers can do. They can do themselves by the app or, or, uh, or um, uh, via their own devices. Uh, so that, that digitalization has you know, been accelerated really because of the necessity that we found to deal with it. But the other point I was going to say, the other example is that when you're looking at things like pricing, it's really interesting because we, we have a very much a, a data-led you know, approach on to pricing and, and demand-led approach to the pricing. And, and we have about 
you know, 600 different profiles from an algorithm point of view that we uh, um, apply when we're looking how to maximize the revenue per seat. But of course, John, you know, almost all of them are based on historical data mm-hmm. and historical patterns. <laughs> and those, those patterns aren't there anymore <laughs> to that extent. So you can clearly see the, the, the need that exists actually not only then to work with data and digital from a historical uh, knowledge point of view, but actually then predict future demand based on uh, other types of evidence, competitor capacity that you know is publicized, uh, for instance, now in, into the summer to some extent, uh, competitive pricing that is available also then for the summer to look more at that and look at recent trading and recent demand pattern in order for them to really be adjusting the algorithms. Um, so it, it's really you know, interesting also to see what has happened on something that used to be a very demand-led stable environment where you can track your prices and your, your, um, your, your, your trading and project very much what it's gonna be based on historical data that just simply isn't relevant anymore to that extent. I mean, we're fortunate in that sense to be in that digital age. If this had happened even 20, 30 years prior, we wouldn't have been able to manipulate in the way we do with this data. Um, just turning to one last question in relation to the pandemic, and again, looking to the future, we've, we've seen the manpower challenges coming out of COVID. Perhaps uh, the industry didn't expect the number of people it had employed to leave permanently. Certainly many people lost their jobs, had to be furloughed, but the, the uh, expectation would be people would come back. Uh, we're in a tight labor market currently, but we can't tell what kind of labor market we'll have in 10 or 20 years time. But do you think the industry has learned or is needing to learn to reappraise uh, what it offers to people? Is it the romantic, sexy industry we perhaps thought it was that people would always come knocking on the door for a job? What's going to be the right approach uh, for that in the future, do you think, Yeoen? It's a, it's a very good point. And, and once again, you know, when I go out and, and, and speak to our crew and uh, at our basis, you, you know, you do have people who started and they joined the company here like in, in, in May. And uh, certainly some of them had a lot of challenges in the beginning. But I would say that the overwhelming part of those people who began then was saying that, look, this is, uh, this is uh, exceptionally fun. This is uh, uh, interesting. It's not as bad as I thought it was when I read in the press. You know, so clearly, I think still the industry has an attractiveness to it whilst you're in it. But of course, if you're standing on the outside and you've been looking at some of the headlines and, and you're looking certainly about some of the challenges that the whole of the sectors had, particularly in the in the UK, you might think that, well, you know, the, this might not be an industry for me as well. So, look, if you're interested in in travel, you're interested in meeting people, you're interested in in, you know, having the opportunity to make an impact on people's livelihoods for the better as well. I, I still believe that this industry has a lot to offer also going forward. Well, that's good to hear, Yeah, Let's turn to the actual mix of airlines in the industry, airline business models. We've got a whole variety, I would say, and it's not just because I'm speaking to you, that uh, low cost is arguably the most successful, but others, we have, for example, hub carriers, we have long-haul low cost, even today, ultra long-haul airlines. Do you think we'll see a change in the composition of business models in the industry in the, uh, the decades ahead? Well, clearly what you're seeing now, at least, is that the, the, the business models that exist, whether you're hub and spoke or, or a low-cost uh, point-to-point airline, are being very much um, 
clearer and much more focused. I think that the legacy cares realize one that coming out of this pandemic, they have become even more uncompetitive on the short haul network. And at the same time, they're making quite a lot of money on the on the long haul and premium leisure. So they are clearly focusing a lot of attention on that long haul premium segment, which then means that the the uh, the attention to their short haul network is, is of less interest and it's there primarily now working as a feeder into their their hubs which the impact is then for us which we clearly can see that there's been a huge retrenchment of capacity from long-haul airlines from that short-haul network which provides an opportunity clearly for us that we we, we certainly taken we managed to get three aircraft worth of slots in lisbon as an example, which is a constrained airport, which is something we're really you know, pleased about. And I think that that will continue. So I think that the, uh, the primary excitement that uh, exists in the boardrooms at the Legacy Airlines is around the fact that they are managing now to charge an absolute fortune for the premium long haul segment. But secondly, when they're sobering up, they're going to try to realize that, you know, what on earth are we going to do with this unprofitable uh, short haul uh, operation that we have? And that, that provides either way you look at it, clearly an opportunity for ourselves. So definitely more scope for low-cost airlines to grow, as you say there, uh, around the uh, European short-haul board. Uh, do you look perhaps uh, to change strategy in the future? You've got a fleet of aircraft which, as new deliveries come in, are going to allow potential to fly further. Some of the models of uh, Airbus's uh, A321, which are available to you perhaps uh, in the future, I mean, you could effectively do long haul. We see some of the competitor airlines are looking at that to an extent. Might you look at that uh, for the future? Do you think others will? Or do you think you'll be more inclined to stick to what you know and uh, make that work, uh, but do more of it? No, absolutely stick to what we're doing because mm -hmm. there's, uh, I mean, look, we are... EasyJet is Europe's uh, second largest airline and with the largest airlines from the primary airport, you know, so our absolute focus is just to grow our presence, uh, uh, you know, in many cases where we already exist. I, I'm much more keen to go from a, a, you know, base of five aircraft to make that six or seven rather than to chase a new market and start up something new. I mean, we, we I still own, even if we're of this size, you know, depending on how you look at it, we still only have like, you know, 5% market share or something like that, or 10% or market share, depending on what you look at. And, you know, come back to me when I when I have 30% market share to say that, look, you're running out of scope here. <laughs> what, what do you need to do? Our course, it's extraordinary, you know, and to a huge extent on our presence at the primary airport and, and the slot constrained airport. That's where we want to grow our presence. And I, I don't think it is clear that, for instance, low-cost airlines going into long haul is an attractive you know, business proposition. I can see it from a customer point of view, particularly with the prices that is now being charged by some. But, but you know, the, the, the fact remains that the longer you are in the air, uh, the less of the efficiencies that you have because of the low-cost model with short turnaround times and, and so on you know, disappears for every hour that you're up in the air. So short haul really has, a, low cost has a real advantage versus legacy short haul because of the efficiencies for short flights, which is the normal, you know, two to two and a half hour sectors. And what about startups, Yoan? I mean, the, the pandemic has brought a, a swathe of new startups. Do you think uh, there'll be the same 
taste in the decades ahead for new people, new approaches to come into the industry. There hasn't been a shortage of entrepreneurs who think they can have a go at this pretty well through history of the industry, but most of them actually fail. Do you think that trend's going to continue in the years ahead? Oh, gosh. I mean, um, if you're crazy enough that you have so much money that you think that this is a good time to start up in uh, an airline without any presence in this environment, uh, I wish them the best of luck. And as you said, you know, a lot of them has also disappeared and, and, and left the stage. So I, I doubt you're going to see that. And the question is then, well, if you and I were starting up an airline today, where would you go because you can't get into the most in-demand uh, slots at the you know constrained airports. So then you would again go into go to places on you know airports you can hardly pronounce so you don't know really where they are on the map. And then you know we know this is quite a big competition over there from from the likes of Ryanair and and others. And you just couldn't get in somewhere else. I just wouldn't know where you would spot that there was an opportunity for you to deliver something that somebody else isn't doing. You can certainly do it from a regional point of view. And of course, you can see that there will be regional carriers who, who could you know, fill a, a, a vacuum of somebody who's pulled, pulled out. But, but at scale, I doubt it. I mean, it's, it's interesting to reflect, I suppose, you know, and EasyJet itself was indeed a startup and was, as I mentioned earlier, a maverick airline. But I, I guess it was a different world. It certainly wasn't uh, born at a time of a, a crisis as we see today. So I, I guess it depends what moment in history somebody decides to have a go. Yes, but, but remember that the characteristics of, of the environment at that point in time was the deregulation. Mm-hmm. And, and at that time, you didn't have the, the constraints at the airports that, that existed, you know, in the primary locations the way it does today. So the, the fact that you now had a you know, level playing field on a number of carriers who, who were just simply too inefficient, that was a clear opportunity. But that doesn't really exist today because you can't get into those airports anymore with, with a sizable program and, and compete. So then you're left to go to you know, really secondary and tertiary airports. And, and then you're, you know, clearly you get less, you know, a catchment of people in that area. And, and there's still quite a lot of competition of, of uh, effective airlines. Absolutely. A fair point, Johan. What about the shape of demand itself in the years ahead? You've already alluded to some of the changes we're seeing now, particularly on, on the long haul side of uh, the business with uh, more premium leisure traffic. What shape do you think demand might be in the next 10 or 20 years? I mean, low cost airlines, as you said, uh, traditionally, uh, their raison d'etre is to sell on price, but selling on price doesn't mean any one type of customer. You sell to a range of people, be they business, leisure or visiting friends and relations. Uh, what do you think we might see see happening? Do you believe in this uh, uh, apparent emergence of what is being called pleasure, a mix of business and leisure? And, and what about the generational side of it, the Gen Zers? Are they going to want to travel as much or differently? Well, so so if you break it down a little bit, I mean, first of all, you're looking at the pricing because you're right. I mean, the pricing is a key component when it comes to you know people's uh, preference of choosing airlines to to travel with them. On, on short haul and and you know all of us is gonna one trying to recover the the cost increases we've seen of course we we're gonna need to do that and they are quite substantial I do think also from a 
demand point of view that the leisure travel you're going to see two things happening you're going to ha- have one part of the clientele who's going to book earlier and ever because they want to get a you know a hold of the really good deals that is out there uh, but you're also going to have people who's going to wait uh, because of uncertainty in you know what uh, disposable income they will have available at that point in time so the booking pattern will come even later than before we know that people will uh, prioritize as their you know the, for the time of the 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 squeeze on how souls they're going to prioritize to to do their holidays we know that they're going to prioritize all inclusive as an example they're going to prioritize destinations where they get a lot of money so the currencies matters we know that in times of uncertainty, they're going to gravitate more towards brands that they trust. They're not likely to take chances on unknown players and unknown travel companies and unknown airlines. Uh, you're going to see it from a business travel point of view, and we've already seen that the SMEs is coming back with their business travel much quicker than the larger corporations. They don't have the same type of travel policies and, and uh, the travel restrictions that has been set up by, by large corporations. The groups of business travel is going to look different. You're going to see that there, there will be travel taking place, but it will not be you know, the same amount. Previously, you could have a group going out with a CEO or CFO or two, three uh, other people. It's going to be fewer people traveling these parties. So there will be a change and there will be a mix of these things, but we know the travel you know, will still be in demand on both these segments. And actually, the business travel is the one that, that has accelerated the most for us in the, in the last couple of months. What about the concept of, of, of pleasure, uh, though, uh, Johan? That's something I find quite interesting because I, I know as we uh, we talk today, you're, you're remote. You're not in your, your office today. Um, I saw somebody put something on social media just a few days ago saying, I've worked from home in 70 different countries. So they really were getting around the world using their digital nomad uh, computer approach. Do you think we're going to see that accelerate? Is that something you you predict and that you'd look to tap into? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I spoke to a hotelier who has a large um, hotel chain in the Mediterranean here just a couple of weeks ago. And he said that he were now, you know, looking to invest in his facilities to, to be able to accommodate for that. That, that people will actually do, you know, work and have that, you know, set up from a work environment with, you know, the connections that is needed and the facilities that is needed at the same time as they're there and, and they can be on on holiday. I mean, it's interesting. You you previously, you know, you think about it in a way that you you went into the office and one of the reasons and the purpose to go into office was that you're going to meet people. Well, many companies go into the office today and there's nobody there. So we actually don't meet people. So, point. well, the whole point of saying, and I know, you know, and we're no exception when we're looking about, uh, you know, our, uh, our working practices that if you're, if you're coming into the office, I don't know, three days a week or something like that, and, and you suddenly find yourself that one of those days, you're just sitting in, in teams and zoom calls anyway, <laughs> what's the point? So I think one has to, you know, think of it in this way that, as your company, if you if you ask people to come into to their offices, you also got to earn their commute in a way. Somebody said that, and I thought that that sounded quite logical. You know, it's got to be worthwhile to do that. So you're setting up the the work experience in the offices, whatever that might be, that you're actually there to see people. And what about generationally? You know, we we hear a lot about the Gen Z. Uh, outlook on life today, quite pragmatic, uh, more 
willing to busk along, I suppose. I mean, I'm a bit perhaps too far removed from that generation to to speak authoritatively, but uh, they seem to have a different outlook. Is it going to be a good one from a point of view of travel and the airline business? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I, you know, no doubt about that. I mean, you should remember that prior to the pandemic, there, there's been a whole generation who's been brought up in a way where, where travel wasn't a big deal. I mean, many thanks part to companies such as ourselves. It didn't cost a fortune. It was convenient. It, it was just something that they could go and see friends and they could go on a holiday. They could go for a couple of days and they could de- see their parents if they lived somewhere else. And that's just part of, of life. Then comes the pandemic where everybody's, you know, uh, to a large extent, particularly in the UK, hasn't been able to travel. But you're not going to get rid of, you know, that underlying demand for that exists for people to go out and see things and, and do things and explore things. It's ultimately within us as human beings to do, and that will continue. And I don't know how many times I got questions on interviews throughout the pandemic when we were in lockdown, the travel restriction. Oh, do you ever think that travel is going to come back to what it was? Well, we saw summer. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I was very skeptical. I mean, it's come back way quicker, way, way more with a vengeance than, than I ever imagined. Yeah. And yeah. Let's let's turn to a different topic. Uh, the, the big one, which we, we can't avoid and we can't do justice to in, in this podcast or we'd be talking for hours, but it is the essential one. And that, of course, is the topic of the environment and sustainability. I know it's something that you've got strong views on. Just want to put a, a couple of so philosophical rather than technical questions to you, Yaron. I mean, I, you're you're a Swede. Uh, I, I do quite a bit of work in Scandinavia myself, and I know the Scandinavian mentality is very, very focused uh, on the environment. Um, first of all, do you think that informs your own views on the subject? And secondly, could it be a bit of a wild card in certain countries? Uh, I, I know in Sweden, we've seen almost a boycott to an extent of some domestic air travel. There are strong feelings about air travel's role in the, the challenge of the, of the climate. Yeah, I, I, I would certainly think that the way I was brought up and in that environment, that uh, that has colored me. And, you know, despite me living in the UK since 2009, yeah, yeah, I always felt strongly about these things as well. And I think most people in Scandinavian countries has, has learned that from when you were young. I mean, I was born at uh, 66 uh, as an example. And I remember the campaigns there was in schools that you should pick up and you should clean up on the streets. You should never throw anything and and there was always this you know focus around keeping you know the the nature in good shape and don't waste anything to to the extent that was possible so i think that has always been part of me and 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 everyone else who been brought up in that environment and that's not the same when you're coming into you know some some other cultures and, and countries for various reasons but i think that to that extent this was something that easydent had done you know, well before I joined as well, um, and 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 partly it, it was, and it is a commercial decision, not only from the fact that it's the primarily the right thing to do, but you know, why would you want to waste you know fuel that mm-hmm. costs a lot of money that then in its turn releases dangerous uh, you know emissions? Easy that we cut the um, carbon intensity from two thousand to twenty twenty with some over thirty percent. And and it was very much driven by the fact that you know there's a there's a cost saving here, but it's also the right thing to do, and I think that that has always been part of what we want to de- do and want to achieve. 
I mean, it's like one third of what we're doing is the cost of fuel that we're having. And that's a substantial part. If you reduce that, you're in better shape and the nature's in a better shape as well. And maybe going beyond your own network, Johan, uh, do, do you think philosophically we might see a bit of a divide around the world uh, geographically or even at a national level in desire to travel, perhaps with uh, the old world, so to speak, thinking particularly of Europe and the US retrenching and the new world, of course, hungry for growth. If we look at countries like India and China, you know, how might that play out and how do we square those uh, differences in outlook? Well, I mean, it, it is it is true, and I saw some numbers on that. I can't remember the exact numbers there, but I think it was only like four or five percent of the world's population who has ever been taking a flight. So, so it tells you how very focused this is on on relatively few people on on the planet, which you can look at then in two ways. You can look to say, well, you know, what happens when the 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 ninety five percent will go and start taking on flights as prosperity or are involved in some of these uh, places hopefully as an example but I think that you know you you cannot uh, deny the fact that there is a huge also uh, acceleration in terms of the technologies that is now starting to become available when it comes to zero emissions as an example and and you know the roadmap we presented to to uh, to net zero by 2050 and and we were the first you know airline uh, you know with a low cost model who announced that roadmap that was uh, verified by the science based target initiative that stipulates for the first time now that we can start taking these technologies you know in into our mm -hmm. fleet get to 2050 but just just to round upon the philosophical side of it as you said there's a, a bit of a, a an opposing outlook in different parts of the world but two other elements i just want to discuss briefly in a philosophical sense are do you think there's a challenge that the industry is not all on the same page about what it's doing right now we, we see different views and linked to that Low-cost airlines, in particular, you know, we we, we mentioned earlier on. Uh, on the one hand, low-cost airlines have been real democratizers of travel, uh, but is it all about growth? Is it all about uh, expansion? Uh, and is that not going to give uh, some challenges for the future? Yeah, but I think that there's a difference. First of all, I don't think that there's anyone from the industry in Europe, certainly, who has the view that did exist from some just three, four years ago, that we need to restrict flying. I, I think it was one CEO of uh, KLM who said that, you know, we, we need to fly less. But that was just purely self-interest because they didn't have growth prospects in front of them. But, you know, my view and I think most people's view, well, all people that I speak to, other CEOs in, in Europe would say, of course, we, we can fly and we should fly more. Because don't forget the massive benefits that come from flying. I mean, the, the improvements in people's livelihoods, the economies the, and the contribution it delivers towards societies as well. So we want to keep all of that and we want to grow that. But at the same time, we want to decarbonize. We want to reduce the impact on the environment. And now you can see that those technologies are becoming available. So I don't think there's anybody, at least in Europe, who doesn't think that growth is still an important element of what we can do, because growth is ultimately good if you do it in a responsible way. And, you know, certainly all the competitors that I speak to are convinced about that, which wasn't really what I heard some people were saying here, or, you know, some only some years ago. But that's because technology has evolved. If you're then looking into 
other sectors in the industry from a geographical point of view, I mean, they would be just, you know, further behind than we are in Europe. A4E, as you know, were the first organization who, who set out to become net zero by 2050, who really, you know, drove this. I was the, the chairman here the other year, and that was started before I was chairman of the organization. But we all signed up and committed to that. And then you saw that U.S. airlines were following, and then you saw also there were moving uh, movements in in the APAC area as well of other airlines. So I think everybody's going to go into this trend. But what is quite, and this is an important point, what is really irritating, and I get frustrated about, is that because some not only airlines, but also OEMs, you know, manufacturers are more progressed than others and less progressed than others. The ones who are less progressed than others on this new technology, they are the one who kind of spreads this idea that, oh, these type of zero emissions technologies, they will not happen uh, for a very long period of time. And uh, because X, Y, Z, that's because they just haven't done their work. Well, you, you touched on an interesting point there, Johan, and uh, let's have a fairly uh, brisk look at some very important issues, and we'll have to do a, another podcast, I think, specifically on the environment. But as you say, technology is moving along. There is a challenge, I think we can't deny, in terms of technology, whether it is uh, p- power sources, hydrogen, uh, electric, uh, more efficient engines using those power sources for larger aircraft, but that doesn't mean no work is going on. You, as you said, have laid out a, a roadmap uh, recently, moving EasyJet's position quite significantly to uh, investment and research in technology uh, at a fast pace with, with partners, including Airbus and Rolls-Royce. But as you said, not everybody buys into it. So your, your, your hypothesis is really that is largely because other people are not doing the same thing to the same extent. Is, is that part of a challenge, would you say? Of course it is. But, but they are badly informed. I'm sorry to say that. And I will tell them every time. And every time this to, to debate this, I just tell them that, look, you're working with the wrong suppliers. They haven't taken this serious. You haven't taken this serious. I mean, we, we you know, at EasyLet and, and, you know, personally as well, I'm hugely interested in the technology aspect of this whole thing. And I can see the opportunities that exist. But, you know, today we know that we're going to have, for instance, you know, a short haul network in Europe that will be primarily driven by hydrogen in whether that is 15, 20, 25 years from now. It's more a matter about timing than the fact that we know it's going to happen. Even three years, four years ago, people were saying that, well, in the industry, well, it won't work because they explained said. And what people always do, the mistake is that they... They don't think of the development technology as being exponential. They think it's linear and they can't see what's going to happen in the future. But there's huge amounts of work that's been done to accelerate these technologies. And of course, when those players then say to media and to the stakeholders, because they haven't done their work or they, they're not committed to the work and they're not you know, just informed, right, that, oh, I have doubts that this will happen. Of course, that gets reflected in, in the debate about it which is the thing that has frustrated me the most when, when we started really on this journey here, uh, which was before the pandemic, by the way. But what you then need to do, you just need to prove them wrong. And I think that's what we've been doing. And a good testament to that is the roadmap to 2050 that we launched here just recently. 
Well, certainly I would encourage uh, listeners to take a look at that, which is uh, available, I know, through your website. Uh, a lot of important research work going on there. We know one element, uh, Yeren, that we are going to have to rely on is to move away from fossil fuels with SAFs, sustainable aviation fuels. Uh, a key question there, and not to go into uh, the weeds uh, of this topic, but are you optimistic we can get to scale and uh, how might we do that? And particularly here in Europe, because I wonder, you know, is Europe uh, falling behind what the US is doing? I know there, there are big incentives from government to, to produce uh, SAF uh, fuel and indeed for airlines to use it. Well, it, it certainly looks uh, like that right now. I think the US has accelerated the work on that. I mean, they have almost all their large airlines is depending on, on long haul as an example. And we know that SAS will play a major role when it comes to decarbonization of, of the long haul, whereas zero emission technology like hydrogen will matter more when it comes to short haul. Uh, but, but I still you know, I think that we still have yet to see more investments coming into the development of, of SaaS and particularly also, you know, the, the, the latest generation of SaaS with power to liquid and, and e-fuels and so on. But that will take uh, some resources. But it's the same thing when it comes to the production of low carbon hydrogen or even green hydrogen for that matter. We need to see that countries and governments are stepping up their investments onto the supply on this. But what's important to think about this, we're debating you and I here now about the supply of the, the energy source. We're not talking about whether the technology will work or not. We know it will work and that's a massive step ahead. And then don't forget when it comes to decarbonization that there's still huge a lot of things that you know, decision makers can still do. I forget about how many times I've been talking about the modernization of the airspace. You know, when are we going to see now an implementation of the single European sky in one shape or form or, or not? I mean, it would represent an over 10% decrease in, in carbon emissions just for EasyJet if that was implemented. That topic has, has been going on for decades, hasn't it, to simplify uh, European sky from an ATC point of view. And it leads me to, to ask you a question uh, on two levels about the role of governments. One, in terms of uh, their willingness to foster uh, a zero emission aviation industry against maybe an instinct perhaps to restrict. I mean, if we look at what happened after COVID hit us, it was straight away lock it down, you know, cut the industry back. We've seen recently the Dutch government with plans to cut capacity permanently at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. How do you think this is going to play out between the need for a strong industry economically and governments have to think about votes in that respect and also their instinct to maybe hold back again for a, a political win? I mean, the perception I have when I speak with um, ministers uh, across the European governments is that there's much less of a narrative or signal now to restrict uh, flying and travel. I, I think that was much stronger, you know, pandemic, because I think then that just fitted with everything that went on in terms of, you know, the, the restrictions that were in, in place in some cases, uh, I think it's more now down to the fact that, look, how do you implement these technologies? And it's less about restrictions. Uh, you mentioned Schiphol as an example and, and Holland, but I think there are some particular challenges around why that fitted them to have that type of, a, a you know, line. But I see less of now talks about you know we need to restrict travel and flying in order to achieve our target i mean my main 
counter argument to to people who say that and when we talk about their space modernization uh, in general i said look how much do you want this really and genuinely to reduce the emissions because you have the opportunity to make a decision together with other decision makers in the country that will you know reduce this by 10 to 15 percent as we speak how much you really want this how much of an urgency do you genuinely think that this is because if you do think it is why isn't it happening and one of the one of the most uh, strange arguments you get from them who still defends why this is difficult to implement is to say, well, we can't do it for security and for military reasons because we need to protect the zones and and the airspace in our you know countries and the, that exist there. But that's just proved to be nonsense, and you can see that with the with the terrible war in uh, in in Ukraine that. The moment that the military wants to have access to the airspace, they take it within minutes. Mm-hmm. So the corridors could still be changed and modernized without that affecting any ability for any country to have their airspace available for military purposes or whatever that would be. So that argument is simply not there anymore. So I keep going on about this. And I, I you know, when I speak to ministers to say, look, how, how much do you genuinely want to decarbonize? Here you have 10 to 15% of carbon reduction sitting in front of you if you can get onto this. And then we, as airlines, we will certainly do our part as well. And what about funding, just in brief? Who's going to pay for this? I mean, we're talking about billions of euros here in Europe alone, whether it is research into uh, uh, new technology, new fuels, scaling up SAFs and so on. Is it going to be the OEMs, in other words, the manufacturers? Is it going to be the airlines? Is it going to be governments? How is that going to play out? Airlines are not known for being flush with cash usually for anything other than essential investments uh, in their their own businesses. Well, I mean, I think everybody needs to contribute to it. I mean, this is not something that's going to happen. And, and we can't, as an industry, expect, you know, the 100% of all the funding becoming in through government investments. And neither can the governments expect that this is just going to come in from, from the business. So everybody would need to contribute to that. But I, when everybody speaks about whatever estimates of the cost that I've seen, um, you know, about w- what reaching net zero will be to 2050, we're, we keep forgetting about what the alternative cost is. Mm-hmm. Well, the alternative cost is great. <laughs> so, absolutely. you know, it's not like you really do have an option whether you should go down this route or not go down this route. This is about making sure you go down this route and you, you do it as quickly and as efficient as you possibly can. And one last question for you, Johan, as we keep this uh, look into the uh, unknown future. Uh, we see, as I mentioned earlier, changes in the political landscape uh, in the world. Your own native Sweden has recently seen quite a, a significant uh, shift in government perspective. There's maybe a more nationalistic outlook amongst uh, a number of governments and uh, possibly poses a number of risks for for travel in the airline sector, perhaps a closing world, you could say. Where where for EasyJet's board does geopolitical risk sit on your your risk register? Well, first of all, we are a a European airline, so we we don't fly, as you know, outside Europe. But but still, you know, you're certainly right to that extent that, you know, you see the nationalistic tendencies and closing borders, uh, you know, being more prevalent now and and uh, but i do think john that this this will go it's like a what do you say in english like a pendulum it goes from mm-hmm. one 
trade to another. And there was a strong force for globalization here not long ago with all the benefits that that created. And, and certainly, you know, that exposed some of the injustices when you have a globalization and you level things out. And then suddenly it becomes apparent for everybody that the, the wealth is very, you know, unequally distributed in the world. And then for various reasons, then, you know, you came into this perspective where, you know, you see more restrictions around borders and things becomes more complicated. But I think that's just going to go back the other way around because ultimately there's too many benefits of using the world supply chains in a more efficient manner by open things up rather than than the the, the opposite. But but I, I think that this is, uh, you know, something that will just go back in the other direction at some point in time uh, anyway. But there will always be geopolitical tensions. There will always be difficulties and and, you know, the industry is not a stranger to that. We lived with that before and we'll continue to live with that. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good point to, to close on, you. And I think we've had a good tour around uh, both the, the landscape as we see it today and what that means for the shape of the industry and the challenges that may arise in the future. It's really been a, a, a great pleasure to talk through these issues with you today, uh, Johan. So I'd like to thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, John. So that's Johan Lundgren, CEO of EasyJet. Uh, a great uh, discussion today. Thanks to Johan. Thanks to you for listening. I hope we've provided some valuable insight for you today into how EasyJet sees the future. I'll be back with the next in the series very soon. But for now, from me, John Strickland, goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group Inc. or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not in any religion, ethnic group, clarification, company, individual thing. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness or validity of any information provided during this podcast series and will not be liable for any errors, omissions or delays in this information, injuries or damages arising from its use.